Hello, I'm Gavin Esler, Chancellor of the University of Kent. Welcome to In Conversation, a series of conversations with extraordinary, interesting people at the university's Gulbenkian Theatre. The idea is to demonstrate the university is quite simply plugged into our wider culture and society with writers, authors, actors and others. All proceeds from the series go to the Kent Opportunity Fund to support scholarships, student projects, bursaries and to relieve financial hardship. The series is interactive. You can contact us, comment and ask questions of future guests on Twitter. Hashtag Gavin Asks. And we welcome your feedback or come along to the next series at the Gobenkian Theatre and ask your own questions of our distinguished guests, as you will hear audience members doing in a moment. This In Conversation is with Alistair Stewart. Gosh, I felt a bit like Jeb Bush there. Could you please clap? <laughs> um, I felt like Trump. Boycott Apple! <laughs> I just thought of that. Oh, gosh, this is going to be a hard evening. It's going to be a toughie. <laughs> Welcome to the Chancellor's Conversations. Uh, our guest tonight is, I think, familiar in every home in this country that actually has electricity. Um, <laughs> he served an apprenticeship in local news. He moved to ITN as industrial correspondent when apparently we had industrial relations in this country. Who knew about that? Um, I first got to know Alistair properly when he was ITN's man in Washington and I worked for the BBC and I should say we were competitors, but I think we became very good friends yes. and still are. Um, please, will you welcome to the Chancellor's con Conversations, Alistair Stewart. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, I, I should say uh, that uh, we get questions by Twitter and email and are much better than my questions, but I'll start with some of mine just to warm you up. Um, how, how did you get into journalism? Was it something you always wanted to do or did you fall into it like some of us did? Uh, the latter and particularly for any of the, uh, uh, the younger folk, as it were, in the audience. One of the things I feel passionately about, particularly in a great university like this, is that young people should keep their minds wide open and not decide at the age of 13 they're going to be X and stick to it. And my ambition in late teens varied between joining the fleet air arm to keep a father who's in the Royal Air Force and a mother who's in the Navy happy, to being an actor, because I like doing that sort of thing, kind of showing off with other people's words. Um, and journalism never even crossed my mind. At university, I was involved in student journalism, helped with the newspaper, but I wanted to be an MP. You may recall, amongst my best buddies were Charles Clark and John Reed and people of that ilk. And I appeared on uh, a local TV station as deputy president of the National Union of Students, banging on about teacher training. And the editor of the programme said, that went very well, have you ever thought of doing it from our side? And I said, no, told my father, who told me I was mad, went back and asked if I could reconsider the verdict, and they said yes. And I gave it a six-month trial in 1976 and never left. And never left. And how's, how's it gone since then? Not badly, I would say. It's, it's, nah, <laughs> it's had its ups and downs. Um, it's... I mean, the industry, you, it's funny having this conversation with someone who, who knows as much, if not more, than I do about the trade. But, but in that period of 76 to now, I mean, talk about the Industrial Revolution. Mm. It's been quite extraordinary. When the likes of Gavin and I started, we were using film. So you had to be back at the newsroom at least an hour and a bit before transmission because it had to go into the tanks and be developed and processed and dried and cut and steam becks and all that sort of stuff. And nowadays it's all digital, it's live, we use sat dishes more than we, than we use anything. So, so that side of it has all changed absolutely fundamentally. And then we were talking over drinks about social media and the impact that that's had upon it. So trying to keep up with the trends and developments in our chosen trade, I've actually found very, very difficult. I mean, I've only ever worked for ITV, bar six months that I did when Five Live was mm -hmm. launched on the radio, and the brilliant and lovely Jenny Abramsky asked if I'd like to have a go at it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really loved radio, because you just have to worry about what you're saying. 
and the words. You don't have to worry about whether you've shaved and whether the shirt goes or whether, as in this case, you've lost a bloody button from your suit. Um, it, it's all about the ideas and the thought, and I really loved it. And then GMTV phoned me up and said, if you're stupid enough to get up at that time on a Sunday morning for the BBC, you can come and do it for us. So it's always been ITV, and yeah, in the main it's been good, but I've had disappointments as well. So, well, you know. It's actually, um, as I say, there's lots of questions. One of my favourites is, has broadcasting, how has broadcasting journalism changed over the course of your career? And it has changed quite a bit, hasn't it? I mean, not just the technology. Yes, it has. And I would say that, that probably competition, I would say, was one of the first uh, real yardsticks of, of, of change in the sense that, that when, when I first started... Uh, there was the BBC TV news and, and radio, and, and utterly brilliant it is, and, and still is, uh, and a very combative, go out there and get it kind of ITV, uh, which was then called ITN as far as the news was concerned. Um, and then since then, you've had this massive growth of other outlets, and you've had kids like Channel 4 coming along, and in many respects, Channel 4 News changed a lot of the rules. Um, I, think it, it, I, I think it tilts quite a lot at those rules, even now, um, and things like impartiality and, and, and uh, objectivity um, are perhaps more in play than they were when, when we first started. But the other real revolution is that social media doesn't simply lend itself to Facebook statuses and, and Twitter messages or tweets, whatever they're called. It's also Vice and it's BuzzFeed and they use video. And if you post something uh, and it says Gavin Esler, BBC, that brand tells me something about reliability, trustworthy, intelligence and so on and so forth. If Higgins post something. It may be beautifully shot. This guy over here does it, and it's magnificent, and thank you. Smile, that's my better side, and what have you. I don't know who he is. Well, I do, because I was introduced to his brother upstairs. But, but I might not know who he is. So do I take what he has to say and show me more seriously, less seriously, or with the same degree of seriousness as I take you? Answer is I take you much more seriously, because it's about brand. But that's the world, I think, that we are fighting with. And I did, final point, I did a talk at Northampton University uh, quite recently, and I think there were about 100, and they were all undergraduate age people. And I said, how many of you watched an appointment to view news bulletin in the last 24 hours, either lunchtime, 6, 6.30 or 10? And I think two hands went up. And I said, and how many of you looked something up that was newsy or what's mm. happening in the Ukraine or how's Arsenal doing against Hull? Doesn't matter, it's all news. And all of the other 98 hands went up. Mm. So that's market-led, and we've got to catch up with that. No, I think that's absolutely a fair point. But I, I talked to a, a group of students at the University of Ireland, a university in Ireland, and uh, they were all talking about citizen journalism. Yep. And I have to say, I don't know, I'd be interested to know what you think about this. I, I said, well, what do you mean by citizen journalism? Well, you know, we go and do this, and we blog it, and we, we post it, and so on. And I said, well, I'm a citizen dentist. I've don't know anything about dentistry, but if you open your mouth, I'll have a look. Now, do you take that rather snotty view too, or do you think... Because I, I took the view that they were witnesses if they'd seen something. Yeah, you nearly became a medical student, though, didn't you? So I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd give you the benefit of the doubt... On dentistry, I'm not really sure. ..if I was really in pain. Um, <laughs> I, and I do, first things first, I do not think that that is the view of a Luddite. I think that is the view of someone who understands the nature of brand and trustworthiness. Mm -hmm. So my view on citizen journalist is that it is a huge challenge for us. And before ever a word is typed or uttered, it may just be a video source. And again, I'm not picking on my friend here, but, but in places all over the You'll world... You'll get right of reply later. <laughs> yeah, all over the world, whether it's, it's Syria, somewhere mm -hmm. that's very, very difficult to folk, for folk to get into, or Ukraine or somewhere like that, Turkey at the moment is a ghastly... 24-7 example of it, things are happening and they're being captured, not only on magnificent cameras like that, but, oh, well, I gave my phone to somebody else, but, you know, I bet nearly everybody in this room's got at least one phone and you can just whack it up and they're so high quality now that it, 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 it's pretty mm. good stuff and mm. you post it. Now, the simple truth is, you don't know who's posted it. And if you take Turkey as an example, you don't know whether one of Mr Putin's agents has filmed it and posted it 
for Mr Putin's purposes. You don't know whether the Prime Minister has filmed it and posted it, or the President of Turkey, or one of the Kurdish groups and what have you. But out it goes, into the pond and what have you. And it will arrive in your newsroom and mine mm. as well. And we have to decide whether we use it mm. and how we describe its provenance. And we will say things like, you know, purporting to be X, Y and Z, or reportedly claimed to be X, Y and Z, but you're going to see it. And if, just as that woman just did there, and turned to her friend and is saying, what is he talking about then, what have you? You've missed those three seconds. And that, I'm not having a go at you, I'm just using you as an example. <laughs> but if you do it again, I'll be down there. <laughs> In those three seconds, you may have missed that crucial caveat, mm. and you will assume that it is as valid an observation as something that John Simpson posts, or Euler Graham, or, or John Irvine. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's really precarious. What? You talked about impartiality. Do you think people care about impartiality in the way they did before? For example, and does it matter? For example, <clears throat> if I read uh, The Guardian or The Mail or whatever, I know what I'm, mm -hmm. broadly what I'm going to get. There are many more newspaper columnists now than people actually going out doing reporting. One of the things I find interesting about the American election, this American election, is there are endless commentators who tell you what to think. And there's very few people who are actually telling you what's going on on the ground. Absolutely. Now, do you think, do, does any of that, <clears throat> it's certainly a change, does it matter? I think it does matter, and I would precurse it by saying, if there is slippage, and I suspect there is, amongst the audience as to whether or not it matters, then I think we also have a duty to try and remind them why we believe it does matter and why we do it in the way that we do it. There used to be there used to be an old gag that the um, uh, the Times is read by people who who, who think they run the world. Uh, the Financial Times is read by people who actually run the world. The Telegraph is read by people who used to run the world. The Morning Star is read by people who think someone else should run the world that lives in another country other than the country that we live in. And The Sun is read by people who don't frankly care as long as she's got long blonde hair and a lovely bust. And you kind of choose what you want between there. Uh, and like Gavin, actually, I don't mind that as of tomorrow morning's newspapers, the Telegraph will tell you that the only sane thing for any thinking person blessed with a functioning brain is to vote out on the 23rd of June. I don't mind that at all. Equally, I don't mind that the Daily Mirror will end that long sentence by saying to vote to stay in and that the Guardian and the Independent will give you variants of it but slightly more to in than out and, and so on and so forth. That's absolutely fine. But I think it is crucial for all of you and millions of others. I mean, in this country, we're just short of 60 million and about 15 million people every day watch a mainstream news bulletin, either from the BBC or from ITV. That is a fantastic accomplishment and I'm very, very proud of it. And what we must make sure is that those two outlets and our good friends at Sky are a source of impartial, as far as human frailty will allow it, information upon which you can then all make up your minds. I don't want you to think for one moment that Esler will vote in or out or Stuart will vote in or out or any of the other people that you see on your television sets. But I do hope that you think you can go to us just to get the basic facts and then make up your own mind. And yes, the key answer to the key part of your question is to me, in a pluralist democracy, that's absolutely crucial. And you and I will both remember when we were covering the Velvet Revolution, mm. 89, the fall of the Berlin Wall, in Bucharest, in Budapest, in Prague, in all of those places, when there was upheaval, the first place they went for was the TV and the radio mm -hmm. station. Yeah, that's absolutely, <clears throat> absolutely right. And, but also, I've had people congratulate uh, <clears throat> British journalism for doing very well, including on one occasion somebody said to me, I love the BBC because you do Benny Hill so well. <laughs> and I remember, even though Benny Hill was an ITV, I took the plaudits because it was, it, it was there. But more, more seriously then, what about Fox, Fox News? Yeah. The phenomenon of Fox News, which people in Britain are mm. familiar with because we can see it, um, that has a market, it has a market in the United States. and. I don't know whether you would think that that is diminishing American democracy or not. Do you? Yes, I do. And I think it probably helped George Bush sneak in for a second term. And I suspect the greatest sin is not what Mr Murdoch may or may not think politically, because ultimately that's a matter for him. 
and it's for the Federal Communications Commission to have acted, which it chose not to. The only way it ever acted over Mr. Murdoch was to insist that he became an American citizen mm. and not an Australian one, otherwise he wasn't allowed to own TV stations. What he then did after that seemed to me to be a hands-off arrangement. The greatest sin for me in that arrangement is that they never told the American public that that's what they were doing. And I think that's the kind of open debate that remains. And I've, I've had this conversation with, with senior colleagues at ITV as well, and said if ever we choose to touch the tiller in a direction that takes us slightly away from Ofcom, or slightly away from our in-house rules of impartiality and balance, I would object to that profoundly. But you must make sure that our lovely friends who are good enough to watch us know what we're doing. And it's not a condescending thing to say, but I genuinely believe that, that millions of folk living particularly in the Midwest of the United States of America didn't realize that that's kind of what was happening with Fox, that Fox became the television arm of the Republican Party. And nobody said boo to a goose. And I think that that is profoundly wrong. And our good friends at ABC and CBS and NBC are still trying desperately hard, but are losing the ratings battle to people like Fox. Mm. Therefore, if you're Deborah Turness, our mutual friend who used to run ITV News and now runs NBC, mm. what does she do? She sticks to her principles, even if it costs her an anchor. She sticks to her principles, but her commercial pressures may rise and rise. And that's a really big debate we have to have. And I think at the moment in the United Kingdom, we have a tough Ofcom, we have an intelligent Department of Culture, Media and Sport, and we have very, very good Director General of the BBC and Editor-in-Chief of ITV News, and long may it endure. We also have a very critical, fairly well-informed public we as do. well. It, Absolutely. It's going to be a very big mistake because yeah. part, part of, uh, you know, I'm, I loved living in the United States, very, very yeah. fond of the United States. But if you are in certain places in the United States, it's very difficult to get news out of the state never mind out of the United States. So uh, that, that's very, very different kind yeah. of media No, world, no, I, 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 absolutely right. And, and again, we both knew because we, we, we lived and worked there. And, and one of the other absolutely fascinating differences and, and whatever we may say critically about the political partiality of print in this country, I mean, it is a vibrant sector, albeit facing tough difficulties. Look at what happened at the Independent, Independent. and the Eye recently. I mean, they've got a tough time of it as well, but you can still, you know, you go down to the railway station on your way to work or whatever, and, and there are, you know, there are, there are four red tops and half a dozen really good broadsheets, and you can pick and choose, uh, and what have you. In the States, not true. You know, you've got the Wall Street Journal, which is a national newspaper. You've got USA Today, which is kind of a newspaper. Um, and then you've got uh, the Washington Post and New York Times. But if you live in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, or if you live in Biloxi, uh, you probably don't bother at all with a newspaper. Uh, not even on a Sunday, unless you're doing physical exercises with them. Um, but you will watch your local TV station, and in big, big numbers. So TV is even more important in America in that sense because there isn't that counterbalance of print. Let me put, I want to th throw things open to, to the audience, but a couple of questions that have come in for you. Is there a particular news story which has had an unexpected yet deep personal impact on you? Berlin in November 1989 had the biggest impact upon me of anything that I've done in nearly 40 years. Uh, the unexpected element of it was that memories of my father reduced me to tears. The impact was because I felt then and I knew instantly that it was the tipping point of post-war history, that it was through the actions of ordinary people rather than politicians or diplomats, the victory of those who aspired to democracy and wanted to have their own say, over dictatorship from the centre, from those who thought better dictatorship of the proletariat and what have you. A whole number of countries in Eastern Europe who eventually could go their own way and have just spent the last 72 hours telling Mr Cameron that he can go his own way to a degree, which I think is a cause of huge celebration. I mean, forget the European Union, but just to see, you know, places like Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia having an equal say, democratically elected prime ministers, putting these other guys in their place, I thought was really quite wonderful to, to observe. <laughs> but, but and, and, and free market economics, which, you know, I'm not making a political point, but, but I think free market economics historically tend to work slightly better than communism and planned economies. So it, it was good, good, good and good in every 
every conceivable respect. What reduced me to tears, and that's not a metaphor, it's actually what happened, was remembering conversations I'd had when I was a lefty teenager with my dad, who was a bomber command navigator, Royal Air Force, about why we had the nuclear deterrent. Uh, and it was to keep the peace, and one day we would win. And I kind of stood there in November 1989 and wept a little tear for him because he was right. Given the duration of your career, do you think that the population has become desensitised to the news, especially in relation to violence and war? That's an interesting matter of judgement, what you actually put into your reports when you're in southern Turkey, if you're in Syria yeah. now. What do you actually show of yeah. the horrors there? I, I think our working assumption, and I, I'm sure that it's exactly the same at your newsroom, <clears throat> is that the working assumption is that they have not become desensitised. Mm. And therefore, the most extreme example I would cite would be the execution of ISIS hostages. And in your newsroom library and in mine, there are many yards of tape mm. uh, of, of people having their throats cut and then their necks chopped and their heads coming off. We, we, we've seen it, it's there. Uh, and we choose not to show that um, for pretty obvious reasons. But if you go to the other extreme, there's the case recently of meningitis B where um, Matt Dawson's child didn't look quite so bad, but that wee lass who died, uh, age two, um, was horrific, and it was mum and dad who said, I want these pictures seen um, because uh, they want every child, not just newborns, to be able to have the vaccination that if you don't get it on the NHS, costs 500 quid. Um, and, and the fact that they said we want it seen informed our judgment. But even then, we still said, you may find some of the pictures in this report upsetting. I think we, we still, day in, day out, wrestle with, uh, with images that we do put on and as I say, the working assumption is that people have not become desensitised. But, rather like my who's watched a bulletin and who's looked things up on the internet, if anyone in this room wants to leave this theatre tonight or after dinner or whatever and Google executions by ISIS, they'll find mm. it mm. and they can see it. But I still think we have a responsibility to know who's watching, what time we're transmitting and what is morally right and what is morally wrong to put on. We also don't want to make heroes out of the bastards. That's another thought. <laughs> what, what, do you, what, do you th what do you think is the biggest problem with journalism? I think that that... I'm, I'm worried about repeating myself, but I do genuinely think the impartiality thing mm. is what worries me most at the moment. And it is partly those commercial pressures. Um, <clears throat> the BBC gets the licence fee anyway, but the charter's being reviewed at the moment, and John Whittingdale, who's a good and wise man, is nevertheless saying, you know, well, people out here, you know, they want value for money, and, and you've got to be able to deliver an audience. And Mr. Ha Lord Hall has been shutting down bits that don't have such a big following, and even looking at the Rolling News Channel mm -hmm. and saying, well, is that really value for money? I mean, we live or die by ratings. Uh, and on commercial television, if we don't get a good audience, whether it's for a drama or for a news programme, we've got a real problem. In the case of a drama, they'll simply shut it down. They won't repeat it. They'll cut it mid-series. They'll move it to the dead of night and just get it out of the way. In news, they put the pressure on. They put the pressure on really, really hard. And currently, they're obliged to put a bulletin on in peak time viewing. Uh, but that's about as strong as it gets. Uh, and therefore, a time may come where uh, the, that law may change, I hope not, in which case th then, then shareholders who invest in ITV, not because they think News at 10 is brilliant, but because they want a decent dividend, may put pressure uh, on the management. So, so I think fighting for survival is, is quite important, but within that context, remaining impartial and not going down that fox road um, is, is probably uh, the most important pressure. And the second one uh, is simply competition but from social media. And it, it, from the younger people it, you know, in the audience, they will know exactly what I mean. Those who are our age, um, you know, Twitter and Facebook were simply things that we didn't grow up with. You know, they are the equivalent of classroom gossip, playground rumour. But now it's there being shared by 300 million people day in, day out. Whereas uh, a friend of mine once said about Twitter, it's graffiti with punctuation. Uh, yeah, well, not always with punctuation. <laughs> I'm not always with, I thought he was over-egging it, actually. Um, but, but actually, just to, to pursue that point, which is the point about money, yeah. which is 
to do what ITN does or the BBC yes. does, or uh, it's expensive. Yes. It's very, very expensive to have somebody in Iran or, or, or somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen the, the film Spotlight, which is about the Boston Globe and investigating uh, uh, paedophilia. I thought it was uh, brilliant. A, a brilliant film. It, the Boston Globe is cutting yeah. jobs. So the people who did that, or their successors, are being cut because there isn't any money in it whereas you can do things much more cheaply online. Now, that, to me, is one possible future, which is, is a fairly bleak future, which is not really doing anything which takes time or effort because it will cost your bosses, your shareholders, uh, the licence fee payers, a lot of money. But within that, I don't dispute a, a word of it, and I, the only thing I'd say, um, Spotlight, I think, is the, is the heir and successor to all the President's men. I think it's up there mm. as, as, a, as a cinematographic... Um, essay on, on really good journalism and Woodward and Bernstein uh, on the tale of Nixon, those the Boston boys on the tale of the Catholic Church or, or six and a half percent of, of, of the priests was, was, was quite extraordinary. We have to admit to something, don't we? And that is that part of the problem is audiences. So Panorama, its audiences have fallen from absolute much watch status of eight, nine million to a couple of million if you're lucky. Um, we don't do a Sunday political programme on ITV where Robert Peston is bringing one back. There's been a gap there for nearly a decade. Mm -hmm. The days of Weekend World and, and Brian <coughs> Walden and Peter Jay and Matthew Paris, long since gone because people didn't watch. Julie Etchingham does a really strong series of programmes, did one on people smuggling quite recently, two million viewers. That's not enough to sustain it if that's the economic model. I mean, in a sense, you're a better hope than we are for those reasons that I gave a moment ago, but even you are under pressure. So we can do all of that investigative journalism and we can be very proud of it and we can say that really matters because it put the Catholic Church in the dock, which for all of those victims is where it should have been. And two million people watched that. How many people watched the thalidomide panorama? How many people read the Sunday Times when thalidomide was broken? immeasurably more. And final point on that, look at what Vice are doing. When Vice started, it was a kind of like for men only on video. They're now sending people to war zones. They're now commissioning young men and women to do documentaries on social issues that matter. And I had long, long chats with my eldest is, is 33. So he's absolutely perfectly that market, incredibly well educated as well. And he said, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that I'm interested in, and that's, that's a, more of a go-to venue. And they can do it for a tenth of the cost. That's a real, real dilemma for us. So brand Panorama, brand The Tonight Programme, brand Etchingham, Jeremy Vine, if I may say so, <laughs> Esther and Stuart. It's a different world. Yeah. And those who are under 25 occupy that world, and they will determine it. Let's have some questions from the audience. Who would like to begin? Gentleman there. Hello, gentlemen. I'd like to refer to a point you made about impartiality and commercial viability earlier. I watched a news bulletin recently about the New Hampshire primaries in America, and I looked at the airtime that was given to Donald Trump compared to Bernie Sanders. Donald Trump, Donald Trump? Sorry. Donald Trump was given about 15 seconds, whereas <coughs> Bernie was given about three. So I wondered how seconds. is that? Three seconds, roughly. I mean, that's the rough example. Donald Trump's given considerably more airtime than Bernie Sanders. Why is it because you know his message is, his nonsense is more viewable? Why is that? Why is there that difference? Um, if I wasn't given notice of that question, which I wasn't, my immediate answer would be because whatever Trump said was more interesting. Interestingly, if it had been the Oldham by-election, which is I think the most recent by-election. Um, Although, sadly, there'll be another air long because one of the Sheffield members passed away, did he not, I think? I think so. Yeah. Um, particularly as you get closer to the actual vote, then we're quite rigorous about it. I, I did the first debate with the party leaders back in 2010. Mm. And I had four stopwatches hidden in my little podium. And so one, you know, Brown, Cameron, Clegg, and overall running time. So we're much more rigorous about it. But, but you know, John Sopel, who does it for the Beeb, and, and Robert Moore, who does it for us, 
Um, I, mean, I don't know whether it was either of them doing it, but I mean, they are both really top of their game journalists and they're not playing silly buggers thinking, you know, I quite like Trump, we'll give him a bit more and that Bernie's a nutty lefty. Um, it's genuinely not like that. I mean, in fact, in the case of Sopel and Moore, they would be more likely to have given slightly more coverage to Bernie because, you know, Bernie's the one who's kind of, well, this is coming from, this is really surprising and Hillary, who everybody thought was a slam dunk, has kind of got a problem. In the same way that who predicted Trump six months ago? So these guys are trying to wrestle with, with what is a breaking story. But the impartiality bit, I would, the only way I would excuse them, and, and without sitting down and watching with you, and which I'd be very happy to do and say, look, no, no, this is what happened. I can see exactly what they've done now. Because we've both done it before. Um, in America, it would be what do folk at home most want to see? Whereas in the UK, take my word, absolutely, the impartiality rule would apply. Some other thoughts. The lady here and the lady there. What are your thoughts, um, justifications or like opinions on journalists being sent to areas such as Nepal after the earthquake where resources are scarce and tight to report back? Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, one of my favourite moments that happened was in Haiti, and it was where Bill Neely, who is a mutual friend and one of the great... He now works for NBC, um, but uh, he's one of the... I think one of the great TV journalists of his age. He writes absolutely beautifully. Uh, and he was one of two reporters that we had in Haiti in the wake of the earthquake and had an on-camera not quite fisticuffs, but it got very close. It was certainly verbal fisticuffs with the American general uh, about why the aid wasn't getting out to people. Um, and uh, the American general got terribly up in knots and what have you, and things started to move uh, a little bit more quickly after that. Um, but I, there are many cases where, you know, it's like politicians having huge conferences about climate change and, and pumping thousands of tonnes of carbon into the atmosphere to get to the conference and say carbon in the atmosphere is a real problem. Um, there is a dilemma there. Uh, my feeling about it is that, that we go to report on what's happening. It, it matters because it is a, it's a story. I mean, that's what we do 24-7 is we tell stories and we choose the stories that we think are a mixture of the most important things, like the American election, and sometimes we pick ones that are of greatest human interest. Nepal, Gurkhas, Aldershot, British Army, there's a kind of connect. Or it's just simply human catastrophe at a level that any normal man or woman would feel empathy towards. And we show them the pictures and let them know what's going on. I do think that people who go to those frontline situations, and I'm guessing at what lies behind your question, I think they try very hard not to get in the way and I think sometimes they will actually help as well. And in the case of Haiti, one thing I'm really proud of is we sent a whole stack of little tiny wee mini cameras uh, through one of the charities, I think it was Care International, for young people, younger than you, but younger generation, to film how they got out of that crisis and how life slowly but surely got better for them. And Emma Murphy did it, and we ran it as a series on News at 10. Somebody would say, well, that was a bit, you know, a bit of a stunt. Bit in it wasn't. The kids loved making the films. People at home who'd given money through DEC saw what was going on. The charity were pleased about it. And it became their citizen mm -hmm. journalism. But it was a very good example of citizen journalism. So, yes, to tell the story, to show how money is being spent, but not to get in the way. Is that Thank kind you. of ticking the bases you had in mind? Lady Thank there. Hello. You've sort of explored a bit of what I wanted to ask about. It's to do with impartiality and entertainment, news being entertainment. And I just wanted to ask almost what guidance there is. Obviously, professional journalists, television and radio journalists are often hugely articulate and intelligent and informed. Um, and what's the balance between exploring a subject and helping the viewer understand a subject and just point scoring and undermining people like politicians? who often aren't very informed. <laughs> do you do... Are you on Twitter? No. I'm very, I've got a very old-fashioned telephone. <coughs> I try and... Splendid. I do basics. Um, there's a chap, Rob Burley, who's the editor of the Mar programme, mm -hmm. uh, recently did an interview, um, and it, it, it's on... <coughs> find a friend who is on Twitter and, and try and find it, because it's a... 40, no, no, it's a 45-minute interview with a young guy who is arguably one of the most brilliant programme editors of his generation. He edits Mar on a Sunday morning, used to work for us, he's worked with Andrew Neil on those political programmes. And there is about a three-minute chunk where he talks about impartiality and how important it is. 
But there's also another chunk about, you know, why is this lying bastard lying to me attitude towards interviewing politicians as opposed to, and he's very, very good at it, and I admire him for it, is asking intelligent questions. Surprise, surprise, listening intelligently to answers, that helps, and then making it an informed conversation. And I think that's absolutely crucial. And Jeremy Paxman is a mutual friend of ours, and I'm not telling lies out of school because Jeremy knows it. There was a period in Jeremy's interviewing career where it became more like light entertainment than news and current affairs. And he knew that, and, 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 and he kind of played to it slightly. Uh, and to me, that's, that's quite destructive because it will, a lot of folk watching it will kind of think that politicians are, by definition, a bunch of lying, conniving bastards. That is not my view. Deep down, it's not Jeremy's view either. There are a few crooks and wastrels in there. But in the main, these are men and women who have chosen in one set of colours or another to try and serve their constituents and ultimately serve their country. And if they're really lucky, lead it. You know, they don't just go in there because they want to get a good expense account and con everybody, because that would be a hiding to nothing and it would be pretty tedious. Most of them are pretty straight, whether they're Labour, Liberal Democrat or, or, or Tory. And, I, you know, I've grown up with them and I, and I like them. Therefore, I don't take the view when I'm interviewing any more than he does uh, that, you know, let's try and point, point score off them. Let's humiliate them. Let's make them look silly because that's quite funny. If they want that, they can watch a version of Benny Hill, as Gavin <laughs> said earlier. You know, or or I don't, Rory Bremner's brilliant at it. That's absolutely fine. But if you've been kind enough to tune into a news and current affairs programme, and I'm going to be talking to Chris Grayling for, for, for five or ten minutes and then Theresa May for five or ten minutes about whether we should vote to stay in or come out of the European Union, I owe it to you to listen intelligently and respectfully to what they've got to say. Pick out bits where I think they're not answering the question. Pick out bits where I think Mr Grayling didn't used to say that but is now saying that. Why is that? Because that's, I hope, what you want to know. And at the end of it... What really attracted you was an intelligent conversation that will help you make your own mind up come the 23rd of June. Not to come away from it thinking, hey, that Alistair Stewart beat two tonnes of SH1T out of that Grayling fellow. Hey, good for that. <laughs> Utter waste of my time, your time and Mr Grayling's. That's my view. There's gen gentlemen there. Anybody up at the back in the outer darkness up there? <laughs> There's a... Is there somebody up there? Either that was the sign of the devil. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go ahead. I'd actually like to follow up on the lying, conniving bastards. <laughs> He'd be the one to. Do you think between 1976 <laughs> and 2016, politicians have less substance? One of my favourite subjects, seriously, and I, my, my answer is no, <clears throat> uh, but with a slight kind of caveat, and the caveat supplied by this. It's 1989 again. I think some of the really big issues that I grew up with when I first became remotely interested in politics in the sixth form at school, which was the late 60s, and then as an undergraduate in the early 1970s at Bristol, those were days when the political debate was between, I mean, ultimately, titans of the size of Michael Foote and Margaret Thatcher, <coughs> where the relationship, your relationship to the means of production to quote Marx, actually mattered. And there was an unresolved battle raging across the world about that, represented also ultimately by two superstates. To a huge extent, that's been resolved. I think in a way it's been replaced by massive theological divisions and disputes taken at their hideous extreme through ISIL, Daesh, call them what you will, where I've got a number of very, very good friends who are Muslims, and I've got a couple of really good friends uh, in Saudi itself. And Saudi's another very complicated line of argument on that whole thing. But, but to your standard Muslim, as it were, you know, Daesh is as horrendous and ghastly as anybody else, and then Sunnis and Shiites, it, it's very, very complicated. I mean, let alone the still partially unresolved Catholic, Roman, uh, and, and Anglican here and there, and what have you. Those seem to have replaced, in some respects, the great intellectual struggles of the day. But the politicians who were drawn to resolving that pre-1989 set of dilemmas, and dear Dennis Healy passed away recently, and again, whether you 
Tory-Labour's Labour's no business of mine to know at all. But, you know, Dennis was an absolute giant, intellectually, and intriguing and fascinating to talk to. I'd say the same about Ted Heath, funnily enough. So, are there people of that calibre in politics today? Possibly not, because the issues that they are drawn to try and resolve are different, and a really deep-seated and important debate and discussion over austerity and public spending is not as commanding as what we had up to and including 1989. I mean, I still think there are some really strong men and women there, uh, backbenchers and frontbenchers as well, and we still have intriguing and quality conversations with them. But giants, maybe giants don't go into bat if the opposition or the ideological opposition isn't as strong as it used to be. That, that may be part of the problem. So, as I say, we could talk for it for hours, but we can't because we've only got however long we've got. But don't you sometimes wonder why... I'll come to those two gentlemen up there. Why people go into politics now? Because, you know, you and I both talk to lots yeah. of politicians, some of whom I admire too and some of whom I admire less. But yeah. generally, I admire people who are prepared to give something for public service. Yes. And they, they point out... There, there's one, one I know who was elected in 2015, and he said to me uh, that when he went home, his wife didn't come to the count... And he said to her uh, at four o'clock in the morning when he returned from the count, I've got bad news, I won. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, you may not always feel sorry <coughs> for him, but I knew exactly <clears throat> what he meant. Yeah. You know, he is going to be pilloried in the newspapers if he does anything. He's on the take. He's in it for himself. They're all the same. You know, you can write mm. your own script. Sure. And they're not. Yeah. No, I, I mean, my mysterious example is someone who actually very well off. And, and curious enough, that's not always a bad thing. Some of, some of the better politicians are the one... I, Macmillan is one of my absolute pin-ups because he didn't have to worry about money. Therefore, there was never a chance of bribery, corruption, backhanders and fiddling the expenses. He was there to do the job. Um, and, 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 and I think that matters. And my example um, is, is very well healed. And what drove him into politics was a... It's a Hampshire constituency, which is where I live, as you know. And his great thing was the quality of food that we eat, whether it's farmer's market, supermarket, or what have you, and the relationship <laughs> between our ability to produce and grow our own food and how that employs people in the process and the supermarkets and how our ability to make good food and sustain decent work is being squeezed out of existence by the supermarkets. That's what he wanted to go into mm -hmm. politics to try and do something about. And he may be making just a little incy-wincy bit of headway. Uh, and then other people from another generation, you know, uh, there are people who have chosen issues that they want to go in and try and sort things out about. And, and to them, hurrah. But there are an awful lot, and it may be like your chum who, who went home at four o'clock, who sadly get sucked into it because they've just kind of maybe gone through it without thinking. They've just gone... It's like I said right at the very beginning about change your mind if you're an undergraduate. Don't do what you thought you definitely want to do when you were 15. Keep an open mind. But, I mean, there is a lot of lobby fodder there on both sides of it, whether they are, you know, Buggins' turn because they rose to a certain height in the Unite Trade Union, therefore they get that seat and Unite will take no prisoners in making sure that they get that seat, or whether they have risen through the ranks of the Conservative Association uh, and they seem to be the sparkling one. So all I'm really saying is I think there are still good men and women who genuinely want to try and get in there and try and do something uh, about an area that they particularly feel strongly about. And I suspect, actually, the debate twixt now and, and the 23rd of June, and Europe, uh, may well give us some stuff, as my friend there was talking about, that will show people in their true colours because it will be about the nation-state, its relationship to a trading bloc and how we've moved since the 1956-7 Treaty of Rome, free mobility of goods, labour and capital, to now, and whether that's right or wrong. And there are a lot of quite bright MPs. George Eustace is a very good mm -hmm. example of that, who used to be Cameron's press man, and he's a very bright, able lad from the West Country. Dad's a farmer, and George was running the family farm before he then went into politics, and he's just come out as an outer. And I have a sneaking respect for him. I'm not saying whether I agree or disagree, because I don't take a view on that. That's part of our job, that's the impartiality thing. But George is the sort of person I'd turn up on a wet, cold night to go and listen to him on it. Somebody up there. Without uh, asking which side of the fence you sit, um, if you were a betting man, how do you think the referendum will play out? <coughs> uh, I suspect that we will vote as a country to stay in 
and I suspect that it will be slightly clearer a margin than the current polls suggest. And I also suspect that everybody who is hanging on Boris Johnson's every word may find that that doesn't translate quite as effectively in the polls as they thought it might. <laughs> as it were. As it were. <laughs> yes. You, well, that, did, is that because you looked at the election results for London, where he's the mayor, and it was the only part of the country where the Labour vote actually went up in 2015? <laughs> no, I... It, it, Boris, I, I'm, I know him. They all say that, don't they? No, but I do. I genuinely know him. Um, he, funnily enough, we had kids at the same school for a while, and, and I mean, off camera and away from politics, I mean, he is one of the cleverest and funniest people uh, you may... Well, you know him. Right. That, you know, he's, he, he's a good bloke. He's a bloke you'd really love going to a dinner party with or having a couple of pints down the pub with, uh, as long as you know a little bit of basic classic Greek um, <laughs> and are at kind of Oxford first level intellectually. Other than that, he's cool as a cucumber. I think Boris is a classic example of the Westminster Village meteoritis problem, and I just don't think that Boris polls well north of Watford. Um, and I suspect that, uh, that that will prove to be the case. Um, and uh, what will happen over, you know, when, when Mr Cameron finally decides to call it a day, uh, that's a really quite interesting argument. Um, you know, Boris clearly at the, in the polls at the moment is, is doing quite well. But the British public, they just love pollsters. They tell pollsters anything they think pollsters <laughs> want to hear. And then they change their mind and then they go in and then they vote. That's why Cameron, one of the reasons Cameron won in 2015 was because he concentrated on one message only in the last 48 hours, which is when you go into the privacy of that polling booth and draw the curtain behind you and are holding your little stubby pencil and no one else is watching, who do you really want to run in the country? And it's a very, very simple political message. And I think if you apply it to Boris, uh, then the hunch of the newspapers may be a little wider the mark. There was somebody over here. Yes. Hi there. Uh, just going back to what you said earlier about competition and the big heavyweights like BBC and ITV uh, facing uh, competition from the likes of Twitter and Facebook, I just wondered what you thought about the future of local newspapers because they're often considered the bedrock of national journalism. And uh, many local newspapers, particularly around here, have folded in the last few years. And um, I think it's a real shame. I just wondered what you thought of it. Yeah. And another bedrock thing that they do so brilliantly is, is, is where an awful lot of young people start, both in local print but also in local radio. Um, and they go in as runners or whatever, or, but in print, much more importantly, that's where indentures tend to be. And, and print still does journalistic training very, very well. I mean, the BBC has one of the best training systems anywhere. We are trying very hard to catch up with it. We've recently launched our own thing um, to, to get people in, and that really matters to, to, to people like Gavin and me, is to attract quality young men and women uh, into the trade. One of the big problems, I, I tend to do a Q&A thing most years for an organisation called the Society of Editors, which is a brilliant organisation because it does what it says on the tin, but it's newspaper editors, radio editors, TV editors, and when I say newspaper, I mean the Times and you know, the, the, the Bolton Gleaner or whatever it might be called. So it's right across the spectrum. And the biggest single pressure on, on local newspapers, they claim, is the BBC Web. Because the BBC Web is so brilliant, and it's one of those compliments that then kind of t pulls the other way at the end of it, it is so brilliant that if you want to know the absolute precise detail of what Mr Cameron said in Cabinet today and in Brussels last night and the night before, it's there. But if you want to know what the Member of Parliament for Bolton West said about it all, it's also there. And it's surrounded by lots of other links to go to other bits and pieces and what have you. So the only way those local newspapers can survive is on advertising. And along come the free sheets. I mean, Metro is a thing that's growing and growing and growing through big city centres. Uh, uh, and it's a model that can work. 
because they are sucking up all of the advertising. So if you are trying to run a traditional local newspaper, content, you're under pressure from the best website in the world, and commercially, you're under pressure from the giveaways. So I'm really worried. I, I share your pessimism. And however good those stories are, it goes back to Gavin's example of the Boston Globe and exposing the evil of paedophilia in the Roman Catholic Church. Really important story. Mega, mega story. But a small audience. And the same is true with great local journalism. Um, however well they do, and uh, Rochdale, you know, Rochdale should have been the making of the local newspapers there, but it wasn't. It, it reaffirmed our position as national broadcasters because we saw the story and we did it really, really well. So I think there is a real problem for them. The only thing I would say, which is an interesting twist to it all, my... I concentrate mainly now on the lunchtime news, but until recently, my big gig was the 6.30. And that magic hour of 6 till 7, well, 6 till 8 if you include Channel 4 News, but I choose not to because they only get between six and 700,000 viewers. Important, yes, different bit of the marketplace, right. But the mass audiences between 6 and 7 are on BBC One, it's national news, local news, and on ITV, it's local news, national news. And the highest score in that quadrant is BBC Local News. And I remember that painfully because the buggers were directly up against me. <laughs> but quite often on ITV, the regional news shows will get a slightly higher audience than the national that follows it. There is a huge appetite in the United Kingdom for quality information about what's happening in your neck of the woods. It's just commercially very, very difficult for local print to capture it. I wish them well, because I think it, I seriously think it really matters. Thank you. Time for, yes, there's a gentleman there and a the gentleman there. Most news is bad news. How do you select the good news? <laughs> the Prince of Wales at Heathrow Airport once said, <clears throat> every day, 20 or 30 of these huge Boeing 747s fly from London to New York perfectly safely. Once in a while, one crashes. You only ever report the one that crashes. <laughs> and the correspondent said, with all due respect, Your Royal Highness, flying safely from London to New York is what they're supposed to do. <laughs> Crashing is what they're not supposed to do. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> I know exactly where you're coming from, and I've worked for nearly 40 years for, for a company that prides itself on and finally in the sense of consciously seeking out either a little story or a clip of film that, that is a little more light-hearted and brings a smile to the face. The fact of the matter is that the bulk of the stuff that makes up that meat of national and international news will seem to be bad news in the sense that it's something that is unexpected. It's news, it's, it's, it's unusual. And more often than not, that tends to be bad stuff. But I, you know, without warning of the question, I, I could go back and research. I'm doing the lunchtime news, I'm very conscious of this, because we pick out and choose and chase health stories, because we know that's a midday audience and there's a lot of people at home at that time of day who like that kind of stuff. And more often than not, those are good news stories. It's a new vaccine that's been discovered that can do X, or a new piece of, there was one on, on um, genetic... Um, uh, characteristics that led to a particular form of heart disease um, and you know, if you had a daughter and you had the disease she could be checked it could then be repaired so were she to fall pregnant then her children your grandchildren wouldn't have that same genetic problem because it would have been dealt with a fantastic breakthrough I mean life transforming and, and wonderful so we try and put that stuff in as well but in the main I guess it's just a definition of you it is what is unexpected it is the unusual and the more often than not that's things that will make you think it's bad news, it's sad, it's worrying, it's frightening, it's horrible, as opposed to saying, good morning, bong, the sun came up today. <laughs> You're not convinced for one minute. A <laughs> <laughs> couple, of, couple of quick uh, questions, if we've got time. I should, I should point out that uh, in Florida, when I was in the United States, there was a television channel in Miami which decided to run a lot of good news. And one of its competitors, which was at the lowest uh, ratings in Miami, decided, uh, following the motto, if it bleeds, it leads, you can see where they were coming from. Guess which one was top of the ratings the next year? It wasn't the happy one, I tell you. Yes, sir. 
Yes, very interesting, that. Um, what I was going to, to, to say was that, in fact, both of you have said how genuine most politicians are in the beliefs that they hold and, and what they are trying to do for the benefit of either their constituents or the country at large. And yet, one thing which maybe this is a common thing, uh, I certainly want to hit the uh, off button on the remote, is that when an intelligent question is asked of a politician, they put all their energy into not replying intelligently, but being as evasive as possible. Yeah. I wonder if you could yeah. comment on that. I'm with you, by the way. Go ahead. You know, I don't, I don't <laughs> dispute that. And, and I bet Gavin's had this conversation, because I certainly have. Then once the cameras have stopped rolling and, and you go into the green room or the next time you see them, I will say that really doesn't help you. It really doesn't. Because if what you've got to sell is a crock of SH1T, sell it, explain why you're stuck with it and what you're going to do about trying to change it. To put gloss on it, you know, there are millions like you who sit there and think, you stupid crap. <laughs> <laughs> and occasionally someone will go, yep, it's a bugger, isn't it? And you'll think, that's my kind of guy or gal. And if only they'd realise it. And, and part of it uh, is media training, which people like Gavin and I, some people like Gavin and I do when we stop doing other things professionally, and I, I have an aversion to it. Um, me, too. me too, actually. Yeah. You're sitting there, you're, you've, you've just got a thousand pounds for training the chief executive of British Gas, and the next mm. day he's sitting opposite you because a house has blown up and five people are dead. Oh, shit. <laughs> Not good. So best to avoid it. Mm. But also within the parties themselves, they, they spend an awful lot of time and effort on, on polishing and preening them. And I, I, I genuinely don't, I just don't think it works. And I think at the moment, funnily enough, Mr Corbyn, is a wonderful example of someone who is incredibly unpolished and shoots from the hip and says what he's always believed and he's held firm to those views for 25, 30 years and we've both known him over that period of time. Um, whether you like him or not is entirely a separate matter, but, but that's partly why so many people are going, blimey. Now, it doesn't translate into the opinion polls at the moment, but the bedrock of support that he's got is under 25 and there's a whole lot of young people saying, about bloody time too. And that's methodology more than content. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Corbyn is the saviour because he's against Trident or this. I don't take a view on any of those issues. I'm answering your question. Cameron, Cameron on a good day, although Cameron is an ex-PR man. I, when I first met Dave Cameron, he was head of press and publicity at Carlton Television. <laughs> And I liked him then, and I like him now as a man. He's a good bloke, and he's one of the cleverest people I know. His tutor at Oxford said it was the best first that he'd ever seen awarded. Politics, philosophy and economics, Brasenose College, Vernon Bogdanor. Absolutely true. When Dave takes his jacket off and gets down onto the stump, like he did in those last two days at, uh, uh, in the general election, I think he's entirely credible. When he's being polished and looked after by other people and told how to manage it, then you start to get the reaction that you get. And I, so that's what I say. I always say it to them. Just, if you've got a crop to sell, sell it and say how you're trying to get something better next time. Just a final thought, because we're running out of time. Uh, obviously, the big story today... Yes. Uh, ..for the next few months is going to be... I thought Arsenal's European... inability to score. Uh, that's... <laughs> <coughs> no, to, to, uh, to return to your previous comments, planes taking off and landing, that's what they're supposed to do. Yes. And in the case of Arsenal, not scoring seems to me to be what they're supposed to do. Um, uh, just a final thought. How much do you look forward to this... Uh, referendum. I mean, I have to say that I didn't predict that Nigel Farage and George Galloway would be sharing a platform yesterday. Nope. So it's going to be full of surprises, isn't it? I think it is. Um, I was thinking earlier, and I, we were joking on Twitter between each other, because I was watching him working very hard <laughs> as I sat at home trying to figure out who was going to win the 345 at Newbury. Um, <laughs> and said, I'm watching your style and just trying to make mental notes about it. But that was him, and he was conducting interviews with these players. If the interview that Chris Grayling gave to Laura Koonsberg and the written statement that Michael Gove issued and the written statement that Theresa May issued 
or anything to go by, I think we're in for a cracker. Because whatever your view, these were really considered honest assertions of intellectual merit from different sides. I think that with Mr. Farage, one of the most interesting things that I think that will happen twixt now and the 23rd is that Mr. Farage will become notably less important to the debate now that the big guns in the big parties are off the leash to say what they think rather than having to hide behind collective cabinet responsibility. And I think Mr. Farage's huge contribution to British democracy, and I really do mean it, is that the British people were entitled to a referendum. We haven't had a say since the 1970s. And that's what Nigel Farage and Jimmy Goldsmith before him, the referendum party, uh, Zach's dad, that's all they existed to do was to get that thing going. And it's a little bit like a catalyst. Now that they've got it going, they'll still be there, but they will be of less significance. But I think that there are people, there's Kate Hoey, there's Frank Field on the Labour side as well. These are men and women of real calibre, who if you give them time, and if we interview them properly and tell them, don't talk crap, talk it straight, I think we'll have an absolute cracker of a debate. I really do. And I do also think it really does matter. Indeed. And on that happy note, I'd like to thank our guest, Alistair Stewart, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Right. The full video of that In Conversation and all our other In Conversations is available on the University of Kent's YouTube channel. You'll be more than welcome to come to the University for our next In Conversations and many other public events which you will find on our website. Thanks for listening.